This is the Unsuitable Podcast. I'm Mary B. Seyfried, a communicator, creator, and coach passionate about filling the gap between what the church offers and what single Christians need. Each episode this season, we're going to explore what it looks like to form deep relationships as people who aren't married. This week, you're going to hear from Peter Valk. Peter is a licensed professional counselor, the director of Equip, and co-founder of the Nashville Family of Brothers, an ecumenically Christian brotherhood for men called to vocational singleness. He helps churches love gay people and celibate Christians find family. In today's episode, you'll hear Peter talk about building community as a gay Christian called to lifelong vocational singleness, the necessity of commitment in relationships, the Nashville family of brothers' modern twist on monastic life, and mutually beneficial relationships between singles, married folks, and the church. Before we hear from Peter, I want to take just a minute to tell you about the awesome company Unsuitable is partnering with this season. As singles, sometimes it's easy to feel like the redheaded stepchildren of the church, which is exactly why I've partnered with Rise of the Gingers to help sponsor this episode. Rise of the Gingers is a t-shirt and accessory company made just for the 2%, the wrongfully alleged as soulless, and often freckled engulfed ginger folks out there. If you're a ginger or know a ginger, head to riseofthegingers.com. Don't forget, this can also make the perfect gift. Use code unsuitable10 for 10% off your order at riseofthegingers.com. Rise of the Gingers is created by gingers for gingers. You will not find better redhead swag anywhere else. Again, use code unsuitable10 for 10% off your entire purchase. All right, here's my conversation with Peter. Hey, Peter. Hey, Mary B. So as we're kicking things off here, I would love for you to tell the people a little bit about yourself. Let's see. Well, first, I guess I'm a, a Christ follower. I'm also gay. You know, I realized when I was uh, in middle school that, that I found other guys attractive. And so being a Christian and being gay and trying to make sense of that has been a, a pretty meaningful part of my story. And I'm also convinced the way God thinks about this stuff is what some people call a traditional sexual ethic. I do believe that that God's best for every Christian is either a kind of a lifetime commitment to to abstinent singleness for the sake of doing kingdom work with undivided attention, or a lifetime commitment to some marriage between a man and a woman with an openness to doing the important kingdom work of, of raising kids. So I think all of us are made for lifelong, lived-in human family in the body of Christ. And so uh, one of the ways I've found family has been the Nashville family of brothers, which is this like quasi monastery that I helped start in Nashville that I think I'll share a little bit more about later. So I won't give all of that away yet. You know, what else about me? I'm a licensed professional counselor. So like a half day a week, I meet with clients in counseling who are trying to make sense of faith and sexuality. And then the rest of the week, I help run a ministry called Equip. And we're basically like a, a team of a missionary consultants who help churches become places where gay people can thrive according to a traditional sexual ethic, like I described earlier. So, you know, we're, the churches we work with, right, they're, they're not coming to us and asking, you know, how do we fix the gay people in our churches so they fit in better? That, yeah. That's not what we do. We work with churches who come to us and say, we love gay people. We love God's wisdom for gay people. And we're not seeing great fruit of that right now. Can you help us do this better? Can you help mm-hmm. us, the church leaders, the parents, do this better? 
so that the gay people in our churches that are, we love will thrive and and, are, and will bear good fruit. So, so that's that. I'm interested to hear a little bit more about how you have formed deep relationships as someone who's single. Yeah. So I'd say I had kind of low expectations about friendship for a while. I mean, in middle school, when I realized that I was gay, I was terrified of close friendship with anyone, but particularly with other dudes, because I was afraid people might find out I was gay and, and then I would get hurt. So so then being a part of this Christian fraternity in college was was cool because I felt I had meaningful friendships for the first time. But but even then, it wasn't until I started meeting with a, a therapist uh, in college and studying some of kind of like the spiritual friendships in scripture that I really let myself need friendship in deeper ways, need other people in deeper ways, like put myself in a position where I could get hurt. Mm. You know, I think, I mean, the stuff that I worked through in counseling was I was just afraid. I didn't know that I could have intimate friendship with someone and that not just be a slippery slope to something sinful. Mm. I was in fear of any kind of intimacy with other guys in particular. And because I had a lot of shame and maybe internalized homophobia that I I perceived all of my desires for anything with another dude to be wrong. Mm. And it took meeting with a therapist to separate what was friendship from what was romantic, from what was sexual, you know, and, and some of the listeners here may disagree with me on sexual ethics and that's fine. I'm not, you know, but what's, I think what, what's important that I'm pointing out is that, that, that not everything is sexual, you know, not yeah. everything is romantic. And, yeah. and I couldn't make that distinction before I met with this therapist. So that was really helpful. And then like getting into scripture and, and someone pointing out for the first time to me, the friendships of David and Jonathan and Ruth and Naomi and Jesus and John and Paul and Timothy and these like deeper committed friendships. And then like historical examples over the past 2000 years. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I started to realize how low a view of friendship I had. And the friendship had a lot more it could offer if I was willing to to lean into it. So 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 in college, I like I, I leaned into that and almost like with abandon, I leaned into <laughs> friendships and like with kind of probably with some some naivete that that people would would love well and reciprocate well and that, mm-hmm. that, that no friend would ever leave me, you know, mm-hmm. that, that like every person that I was willing to invest in would make some kind of David and Jonathan oath with me or something. And, and which then led to like heartbreak because. Mm-hmm you know, friendships change. And most of the people I was around weren't looking for, if they were looking for a best friend, they were looking for a best friend and a spouse, Mm -hmm. but they weren't looking for any, you know, same-sex best friendships. And then, you know, when I left college, most people moved away or if they stuck around, you know, we went from having 15 hours of class a week to 40 hours of work a week. And and there's just much Mm -hmm. less time to connect with people. And people started having to, with scarcity, prioritize those precious hours. And often that was prioritized around romantic relationships. So that was tough. I I think in some ways, I know a lot of people who look fondly back on college and the kind of community they experienced in college. And maybe I think I, for a while, took for granted the practical, how much like college Offered a, provided an opportunity for deep friendship, time and space and energy. And a lot of it is just practical barriers to having the same depth of friendship now, right? Mm-hmm. Like I had 15 hours of class, of hours in class and maybe, maybe another 15 hours of homework, of really like focused homework a week. Okay. 30 hours of work a week in college. Now 40 hours a week, right? I mean, that's 10 less hours, but. When you compare that to the number of waking hours we have, that's that's 10 really meaningful hours. Um, yeah. It makes a difference that you're living all in the same building with the people that you want to be friends with in yeah. college versus mm-hmm. just the five-minute drive 
to hang out with people after college. It makes a huge difference. Um, I think it makes a big difference that like, like if, for, for a lot of us, we have the privilege of like scholarships or our parents paying for for our living expenses. So we're not having to worry about the stresses of finances. That is not true after college, right? So there's so many things right. that made friendships easy in college. And then when we hit the real world, they're not easy. Yeah. So I think that's what changed for me. And then like I, I had kind of three different like intentional living situations with other guys after college. And none of them involving commitments, but all of them like, okay, we're some Christian guys. We're going to rent a house together. We're going to, you know, pray together some. We're going to be intentional. It was a lot of like vague kind of aspirational stuff mm-hmm. that, you know, one after another, the, the community fell apart. Guys move cities for a job or move cities for a marriage or just move out of the house for a marriage or, or there were disagreements. And instead of leaning into working out those disagreements, they kind of went, mm. went elsewhere. And at one point, I think my heart just got really tired of connecting deeply with people and then having to disconnect that, like that connection being broken. Yeah. And I don't want to like in any way belittle the real pain of divorce or like a Christian marriage, a two becoming one being broken and how painful that is. But the, the closest thing I could compare it to was what I heard that, that I, the closest thing I could compare what I was feeling was what I heard my friends who have experienced divorce describing. But like, we're not made to connect deeply with people and then be torn apart. We're not made for that. Like, it, it, it makes sense that our hearts would like yell and scream in resistance to that and say, this is too painful. And that's what I felt. Like, I, I think it, at some point after kind of those naively throwing myself into myself into deep friendship in college and then this like string of intentional Christian communities that fell apart, like my heart basically said, we're not going to let anyone else in until that love is safe. No more. No more. No one else gets to come in until that love is safe. And I knew what safe meant to my heart. Safe meant like it's not going to be broken. Hmm. They're not going to leave. It's going to be permanent. Hmm. And maybe not everyone needs that. But but I realized, well, through some conversations with friends and family and therapist and pastor, like I think what I realized is I needed something permanent. And, and I'll say, I, I mean, I do actually think that's a universal need. Like, I actually think, like, family is a sacrament of sorts. It's an ordinary thing that helps us teach us about the mystery of God's love and, and is an ordinary thing through which God loves us. And mm-hmm. I don't know, what when I look at God, God's family in the Trinity and between Christ and the church, I see a love that is perfectly faithful, that is permanent, that is lifelong. So I kind of think that, like, if human families are supposed to be these things that, that are supposed to mirror the love of God and his family to help us teach help teach us about God's love. I kind of think actually we're all made for some permanent human family. I think that's how that's, I think it's the proper way for that sacrament to be embodied. So personal opinion. So so anyway, I shared earlier, okay, that that I thought I was called to this like lifetime singleness for the sake of the kingdom, that I think the people still need family. So what does that look like? Well, I didn't know the answer to that question. So (laughs) I took, I took this question to my pastor. I said, Hey, pastor man, what's the answer? And you know, he's a, he's a straight dude. He's married. He has kids. But through some different life stuff he had gone through, he kind of went on retreats to a monastery out in the Southwest frequently mm. and has and developed these friendships with monks out there. So he had this sensitivity towards knowing what people who are committed to lifetime singleness mean. Mm. So I asked him, how do I find family and celibacy? And I'm so thankful for his honesty and his answer because he said, Peter, I don't think you're going to find the kind of family you need in this church or any church in Nashville anytime soon. And I'm really sorry about that. But the most common way that celibate people have found family 
throughout church history has been monasticism. Hmm. It's been the greatest source of theology in the church. It's been the greatest source of social justice in the church. It's been the greatest source of evangelism in the church. So if you feel like you're supposed to stay in Nashville, and if you can't find something like that in Nashville already, like maybe you should try to start something and then like stick around at our church and teach us how to do it. So that's kind of, that's what it did like four years ago. Some, some other guys and I who, who kind of felt a need for something similar started gathering weekly for, for meals and reading through a book about kind of discernment and basically with open hands praying, God, are you calling us to start some kind of monastery in Nashville? Mm-hmm. And fast forward to today, that, that, that's what I live in right now. That's what I'm you know, doing this podcast from is the, is the Nashville family of brothers. So I can share more about that, but, but, but I guess, I guess the, the short answer to your question, like, how do I form deep relationships as a single person? I think I've realized that I, I, I need, I need the people who I'm going to have the deepest relationships with are the people I live with hmm. and the people who are committed to me and the people who I've made commitments to. And at least for me, I think those, are, I think I've discovered those are some essential ingredients for my heart to let myself have those deepest friendships and let myself need them and not live in constant fear and anxiety that I will lose them. But, and I think maybe that's kind of what God's made me for. So, so yeah. Yes. I would love to hear a little bit more like functionally, like what your Nashville family of brothers, how that kind of functions. Sure. Maybe we'll have some other, I have some other questions as well, but I would love to hear more about the like nuts and bolts of it. Yes. Yeah. Many people are, or people are often curious. Okay, a monastery? What, what is this exactly? <laughs> Do you uh, wear robes? <laughs> right, yeah. So I would say how we're like we how we are like a typical monastery is that we all live in the same house. We do morning prayer together every morning, except for Sunday mornings. And we do like a modified version of like Book of Common Prayer, Morning Prayer. We do some confession and accountability stuff routinely. We do a certain number of meals together each week. Mm-hmm. We do vacations together. We do holidays together. Like we, we alternate Thanksgivings and Christmases with our biological families. We uh, eventually will make lifetime commitments to each other, to this community and lifetime commitments to, to abstinence singleness for the sake of kingdom work with undivided attention. We, we think we should, we're supposed to live kind of simply with our finances and we, we do some stuff in common financially. Ways we're different than a typical monastery is, well, first, our monastery is not our church. It is not our place of worship. We are all connected to our local churches. And we're amongst the, the five guys in the house right now. We go to three different churches. No, excuse me, four different churches. Yes, four different churches. And so so we, you know, a big part of the Nashville family of brothers is that we requires brothers to still be committed to the mission and the community of a local church outside of the Nashville family of brothers. It's very important to us. Another thing, way we're different than a typical monastery is like our place of employment, our job is not in the monastery. Like, mm-hmm. I guess some of us are working from home these days because of COVID things and lingering COVID things, but like none of us are employed by our home. We all have jobs outside of the Nashville family of brothers. And we believe that because we're called a vocational singleness, we should be particularly leveraging our nine to five job to, to bring about the kingdom more swiftly, to give our first fruits to those kinds of efforts because we can afford to take the jobs that are maybe more optimized for kingdom work because we aren't doing the expensive work of raising kids. And because we're kind of living in community, we our costs are lower because we're sharing a lot of things. So we've got a guy who is kind of working for a an, an, kind of apologetics and pastor training ministry. I'm doing the work I'm doing with Equip. We've got another guy who's working for a 
Christian University, kind of helping with kind of on the academic side of that. And we've, we've got guys who are, doing, who are doing other things and exploring what it looks like for them to kind of use their singleness for the sake of the kingdom. So, so that's a way that we're kind of different than a typical monastery. And then like, we're not cloistered. We don't live two hours away from the city. We live in the city. We're still really connected to, to, to our friends who are, who are married and to their kids and really want to be integrated in the life of our city. So, so yeah, that's, that's the Nashville family of brothers. I love that. I would like to hear more about, there's something that you mentioned previously about intentional living situations that ended or people moved out because they didn't want to lean into like the working out of disagreements. And I think that you also were talking a lot about safety and the this idea mm-hmm. of relational safety. And I think those two things go kind of hand in hand. So I would just be, I'd be interested in hearing like how leaning into those like disagreements or conflicts that come up has actually maybe, well, Let's not make it a leading question. How has that affected your relationships? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's been different in the Nashville family of brothers because, yeah. well, for a couple of reasons. One, because, you know, we're, so we're increasingly make. I've not made a lifetime commitment to the Nashville family of brothers yet. No one has. You know, we kind of start out by making one-year commitments and then we make three-year commitments. And then if we feel confident enough that God is calling us to make lifetime commitments, we make lifetime commitments. But still, you know, if a guy's made three-year commitment to this community, you know, that that's that's longer than most leases, right? You know, yeah. I mean, most people don't make a, if you're kind of just living with roommates post-college, maybe you make a two-year commitment. But even then, yeah. it's a recognition that you're not actually, if you need to leave, you can sublet your spot and you can leave when you want to, right? So, like, I know that these guys are kind of stuck with me and I'm stuck with them, for better or for worse. Right. So when some things come up, that, you know, I'm rubbing someone else the wrong way. They're rubbing me the wrong way. You know, maybe if, if I knew all my leases up in six months or I can leave in three months if this gets too difficult, maybe I'd just ignore it, you know? But if I'm yeah. stuck with these guys for three more years, I don't know if I can ignore this for three years. I think we just need to talk about it. So it's, it can sometimes be inconvenient because sometimes I would rather just ignore stuff. But it's beautiful because it forces us to have these tough conversations. And and what it ultimately, what I consistently see is the fruit of that if we if we do conflict well and in healthy ways, and if I'm willing to own what I do wrong, and I'm willing to confess, is I know people more deeply on the other side of conflict. Mm-hmm. Like, as opposed to feeling more distant from people, I feel more connected to people on the other side of healthy conflict and kind of working through stuff. Sometimes I'm really irritated by the fact that living in this community forces me to, to lean into my sanctification more more earnestly. But certainly when I zoom out and, and over the long haul, I, I think I'll be really grateful. You know, I did a mission trip between college and grad school, and I was on a team of women. And, you know, we were together for 11 months, not all of us, the team kind of switched out, but some of us were together for 11 months, and we did not always get along. But there was like this built in feedback mechanism, where we kind of had to like deal with it, because we were like, seven women sharing a room, you know, Mm -hmm. and you just you just like, can't, you don't have the luxury of letting things fester, because things get like, extremely miserable extremely quickly and but at the same time like what you're saying is there's like a really cool fruit that comes out of it that deepens the relationship that like makes has the potential for people to like trust one another more because i know like oh this person has seen me not at my best or knows this thing about me that i would prefer to hide from other people and they Mm -hmm. like are still here and they still want to be here. They're still yeah. like choosing to make an effort to 
be around me. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, it's definitely a privilege and definitely difficult at times. And yeah, but but and even practice doesn't doesn't make perfect. Or yeah. at least we need a lot of help. I mean, we we've we've talked about basically going to like a a marriage therapist, but like for our whole, you know, community. Yeah. And yeah. and kind of some couples therapy, but for for five of us uh, to talk through yeah. some stuff. And we're we're, you know, going to start reading through a book soon about like just kind of norming on expectations around healthy interpersonal conflict. So, so yeah, so, you know, if, if anyone wants the, the, the book, uh, Changes That Heal, I forget the name of the author, but that's, a, you know, if anyone out there, whether it's with a spouse or with a group of friends or with an intentional Christian community kind of thing, or trying to be like, you know, what are, are there some resources that I can learn how to do conflict better? Yeah, I think that's a good book. I'd be curious to hear about how this has informed your relationship with your local church if you're still part of the church that you like sought counsel from before like starting this how this has affected that relationship yeah so i'm I'm still part of that same church church of the redeemer an anglican church here in nashville Uh, and that pastor who gave the the honest the honest feedback and the good advice was uh father thomas mckenzie yeah and and i hope to be going to that church for the for the rest of my life you know we'll see what god god's plans are but Yeah, I mean, so Father Thomas has been actually really instrumental in the Nashville Family Brothers forming. He uh, kind of consistently would has, has met with me and, and another leader to, to kind of hear how we're doing, to pray for us, to give us some advice, to kind of talk through some of the practical aspects of this. Mm-hmm. He, you know, increasingly has been teaching in our church about celibacy and about spiritual fatherhood and, and mm-hmm. kind of I've noticed a transformation in the ways that he's talking about discernment and vocational singleness in Christian marriage from the pulpit. And then, you know, when we realized, okay, we, we think we're going to, we're going to start doing this in a more formalized way. And we think we need to make kind of a one-year commitment to this dealio. He said, okay, let's, let's use the church. Let's do it in the sanctuary. He led the ceremony in his collar. You know, we, we got to use the fellowship hall afterwards to celebrate together. So it, they've been a huge support. And the, the couples that we're kind of closest to in the church that are kind of the, the other kind of co-founder and I, the parents of actually each of our godsons, are, are, are still very closely connected to us and are very supportive of this. And, and, are, and they're excited about their you know, sons and, and daughters growing up around us and, and growing up you know, in our houses and seeing a bunch of several dudes doing following the Lord in a different way, you know, and, and then, and those young Christians getting to see what marriage looks like and what vocational singleness looks like and, and being open to either from the Lord. So that's been super cool. And, and definitely ways that like our churches, the, the leaders at our church are supportive of the National Family Brothers and are creating more and more spaces where we can share about what we're doing and where we can find community. So I don't think the final solution is for every single per, per, every person committed to lifetime singleness to live in a single sex monastery. Like I think in some ways it's more of a, a temporary solution, right? I mean, in an mm-hmm. ideal world, we would all live in the same communities as our churches. We would be committed to those churches for the rest of our life, and we would live in like multifamily, multigenerational like homes and like clusters of homes in that neighborhood, right? And if that were the case, like, oh, there would be no need for this monastery, right? I don't know if like my church or any churches in Nashville are going to like get to that anytime soon. And yeah. so we, we, this is not just a life raft for the next couple of years. This may need to be a, a, a more, a very sturdy life raft, right? And this may need to be a, a more permanent life raft, more like yeah. an aircraft carrier of sorts. So, yeah. Hmm. 
I'm really passionate about the idea of like expanding our imagination for what's possible for, especially for our lives as people who are single, but in, you know, just in general for what it means to, to follow God and what it means to live a life of faith. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, that there's such a robust picture of that in scripture. And I think there's such a, that, you know, the kinds of relationships that you're talking about really help to broaden that picture and to expand the conversation. And even as you're talking about how like it's informed the kinds of things that are being talked about from the pulpit and the kinds of relationships that you're building with the people in your church, you know, it's, I think it's a really compelling picture of, of what the church could be and what a direction that it could go if we kind of were able to allow ourselves to learn from each other in this way that you've like been able to find. I would actually like to hear a little bit more, uh, hear you talk more about discerning vocational singleness. So I think it would behoove every Christian to kind of pause, you know, if they're not married yet or haven't made a lifetime commitment to celibacy yet, to pause and and really open-handedly discern whether God's preference for them is, is Christian marriage. Or, or vocational singleness. And, and I think some good ingredients for that discernment is meeting with a spiritual director or someone who can guide you through that discernment process. Good cheat code for that is find the closest Catholic retreat center to where you live. And then there probably is a spiritual director there who may be a little bored and ask them to lead you through this process. <laughs> you'll probably get, they'll probably say yes and they'll be willing to do it for free and they'll be the sweetest person you'll spend time with every week and it'll be great. So so get a spiritual director or someone that lead, can lead you through this discernment process. You know, yeah, so number one, spiritual director. Number two, like I think part of discernment is to make sure we have a healthy theology of both vocational singleness and marriage. So kind of study up on those. Number three is we got to remove any emotional barriers we have to either. And for me, that was like working through some of my stuff and counseling related to singleness and related to marriage, you know. And, and maybe it doesn't mean that we clear out all of our resistances or all of our preferences, but maybe it just means I have an awareness of what my biases are emotionally to these vocations. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, you know, one thing you, one can do with that spiritual director is to kind of look at our past and see if it suggests kind of any kind of providence in our circumstances for like which which vocation God might have for us. I think also asking the question of like, hey, God, like, are you calling me to a, a, a nine to five job that kind of necessitates vocational singleness in order to do it well? Or God, might you be, do I have this feeling that like the primary kingdom work you're calling me to do is raise kids? Or, or God, do I feel like neither of those, you know, that can be an informative question for whether or not God is maybe calling someone to vocational singleness or to Christian marriage. And then, yeah, lots of prayer, <laughs> lots of time in conversation, in community in the word. So yeah, I think everyone should discern. I think those are some good ingredients for discernment. You know, gosh, if if every Christian open-handedly discerned between these two things, maybe it would still lead to like only five or 10% of Christians embracing lifetime singleness for the sake of the kingdom and still 90% of people doing Christian marriage. But you know what? It it would lead to a lot more people, I think, in, in, um, in a positive way, embracing singleness as a vocation as opposed to seeing it involuntary. And I think it would lead to those 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 majority of people who end up doing Christian marriage, instead of seeing it as the default path, seeing it as a gift, seeing it as a responsibility, seeing it as a mission from God. So I think discernment would lead to healthier marriages and healthy healthier singleness in our churches. I think it's worth saying and kind of honoring that also, I mean, when 
kind of because my story is I'm I'm a, I'm a gay celibate Christian. I'm off, often some of the context I'm having these conversations is, is, is with and about other gay celibate Christians. Yeah. But I, the the more the more numerous kind of is single Christian women in yep. the church, and I think it needs to be said that like. There, there are obviously some Christian women who are called to lifetime singleness for the sake of the kingdom, right? Yeah. I think there's also probably many women who God's maybe first hope for them was Christian marriage. But because there aren't enough faithful men in the church, yeah. there is a practical barrier to them stepping yeah. into maybe what God's first hope for them was. Yeah. And I think as men in the church, we need to own that. We need to recognize that. And, and, and then we need to reckon with the reality of, okay, so then if a, a, a kind of boatload full of, of faithful men doesn't show up tomorrow on the shores of our church, what does that mean for these women? And I think sometimes our churches in subtle ways may suggest that these women aren't finding spouses because there's something wrong with them. Yep. Instead of recognizing, no, they're not finding spouses because men are unfaithful. And, but that, that, but that might not fix the problem. What does it then look like to, to, to mourn this with women, to be angry with them? And then for our churches, actually do, be, do do a better job of supporting single people in our churches, whether they're single because they're called to a lifetime location of singleness for the sake of the kingdom, whether they find themselves in, in long-term singleness d- despite their preference or despite God's preference. How can we have better structures in our churches to support anyone who's doing singleness in our churches? So, yeah, yeah I, just, I think those things need to be said. Oh, absolutely. For sure. And I'm glad that you said them. I think our churches have got to do a better job of celebrating singleness. And, and I think a, a really great way to do that is, is if, you know, people are interested in making some kind of short-term or long-term commitments to singleness for the Lord, doing that in our church. Like, like, like the pastor at our church was willing to let us use our church to do this, this ceremony. And then, and doing it big, right? I mean, we're make, we're kind of, I've been dreaming a little bit about when I make lifetime commitments to the National Family of Brothers, what's that going to look like, you know? Yeah. Big organ, brass quintet, black tie event. Uh, <laughs> Do it right. I, I joke that I'm going to spend as much money on my lifetime commitment ceremony as people spend on the wedding. And then I realized oh my that gosh. Would, get, I would listen, have to sell get a my registry. car. <laughs> yes, yes. A registry, yes. Uh, yes. I don't have enough money to afford that, so but I probably won't do that. But but no, do it big, right? I mean, and it it feels silly. Maybe sometimes it feels materialistic. But these are the things that like signal to us that this is yeah. valuable, that this matters. It's a marker. Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's meaningful. These milestones are meaningful. And then if there's a commitment we do to this, well, then we have an anniversary to celebrate. You know, so mm-hmm. to ce- so celebrate that. I think we've got to see it modeled in our churches, right? I think our churches need to be intentional about seeking out leaders, leaders who are Hello. up front, who are called to singleness for the sake of the kingdom for a lifetime, or they're in long-term singleness, and not seeing that yep. as a detriment, but celebrating that, speaking to yep. that. Also, not seeing that as something our churches can abuse and task single with doing everything in the church just because they're single. Yep, yep. So the balance there, but I think modeling it is really important. And then I think our churches have got to be kind of facilitators, be fostering, you know, how to sell the people find family in the body of Christ. Yeah. Maybe it's Maybe it's being like my pastor and, and helping people start monasteries. Maybe it's kind of a, a more informal kind of intentional Christian community that the church serves as kind of a gathering place, kind of an incubator for. Maybe it's kind of, you know, helping pair single people with unrelated nuclear families that would be interested in living kind of a smaller intentional Christian community arrangement. Whatever it is, I think our churches need to be kind of the brokers, the facilitators of single people finding family in the body of Christ. So so kind of there's lots that the church needs to do. Okay. There's lots that the church needs to do. But there's probably a lot of people who will listen to that list and say, my church is never going to do that. 
what can I do? And well, you can go set up a mon- monastery <laughs> or a convent of some sort, <laughs> you know. No, but but I think really what they're asking is like, how can I find comfort in this? And there's a book by a guy named Max Therian about marriage and celibacy that I really like. And he addresses this question kind of, what about people? who find themselves in long-term singleness don't feel like this was their call, but it seems inevitable to them that they will be single for a lifetime. What do they do then? And, and he talked about the author invited pastors to very lovingly and carefully guide these single people first through maybe a, a, a mourning process of feeling like that, that's not going to happen, you know, yeah. and not, and to, to, to honor that pain by, by bringing it into the light, by naming it, mm. by crying about it, you know, by getting angry about it. And then what does it look like for that pastor to very carefully, very lovingly invite that single person to say, you know, maybe this wasn't your first preference. Maybe it wasn't even God's first preference that you do lifetime singleness. Mm. Do you think there's a benefit to, for, for you to mentally embracing lifetime singleness? What would it look like to ask God for that gift? And to step into that in a more chosen way, to embrace that fully, even if some of your heart is always going to be a little bit reluctant to it. Because I think there's a sense of, even with some reluctance, stepping into that, embracing that, claiming that, that provides some peace, provides some direction, provides some finality, provides some, I'm not waiting anymore. I'm not going to move forward with this plan, even though it wasn't my Mm -hmm. first plan. That can be really helpful for people. So, yeah. 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 Yep, 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 yep. Um, <laughs> pre- man, preaching the choir here. I love it. I love it all. Okay. In our last few moments, <laughs> would you, I would love to hear how we can support you. Sure. Okay. Let's see. If you're a listener and you're straight and not married, you can discern whether God's calling you to vocational singleness or marriage. Maybe even uh, start start something like the, the National Family Brothers. You know, if you're, if you plan on raising children, you know, a way you can kind of indirectly help people like me is, is teach your children about God's love and wisdom for all people and prepare all of them to discern between vocational singleness and Christian marriage, regardless of sexual orientation. If you listen to this and you're like interested in this whole National Family Brothers idea, either because like you would like to join or you want to start something similar, like please reach out to me. I'm my, uh, it's, it's Peter L. Vault, P-I-E-T-E-R-L-V as in Victor, A-L-K, on all platforms. Would love to talk about that. Would love to, like, if you're interested in starting something like this in another city, would love to coach you through that. Like, I, I, I want there to be things like the National Family of Brothers and the National Family of Sisters in, in lots of cities across America. So please do that. If, if you were interested in like this stuff I mentioned earlier about uh, Equip, this ministry around LGBT topics, you can also kind of reach out to me on any of those platforms at Peter L. Vault. And would love to connect you with some free resources and, and, and talk to you about the work of Equip. Or if you're interested in supporting the work of Equip financially, you can find all that info there. And then, yeah, I mean, if you get on any of those platforms, you, you'll probably find, find my link tree. And you can find some articles related to all these conversations we've been having on that link tree. Yeah, those are some different ways people can like continue connecting and you know, continue this conversation. Love it. And all of those links and whatnot will be in the episode description. So it's nice and easy for people to find you. Yep, yep. Peter, last but certainly not least, will you tell me one thing that's hard right now and one thing that's great? This whole building monastery thing has involved a lot of trial and error, and the, that error is painful. And and we're we're doing this like while each of us who are trying to build this thing are also starving for a life-giving experience of family in the body of Christ. So, you know, kind of like mm-hmm. building a life raft while you're sinking kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's 
I guess that's a hard thing. You know, we're we're finding our way, but we really need God's grace and and you know your prayers may be and prayers of your listeners. But I'd say the thing that I'm like really thankful for, a thing that, that that's great is like we've got five guys in the house right now. We've got two or three more guys moving in in the next kind of three to six months. We're we're getting ready to celebrate some new commitments from some guys. We're, we've been going on vacation together. I, you know, I like I think we're we're making the kind of memories that hopefully we'll look back fondly on like five years from now or fifty years from now. Like just recently we. We spent Memorial Day weekend at one of the brothers' biological family's lake house in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And we spent our days like working from the lake house during the week. And then on the weekend, we did like some boating and we enjoyed the sunset. And uh, we ended our nights like sitting by the fire in the living room and chatting or listening to music or reading or playing card games or putting together a puzzle. I'm really, that's great. Like these times with, with these men who I call family. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I love it. Well, Peter, this has been so lovely, and I'm so thankful for your time and for your wisdom. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I I, I love chatting about this stuff too. So thank you for the, the work you're doing, having these conversations on this podcast. You can find Peter on social media at Peter L. Vault. Learn more about Equip at equipyourcommunity.org and the Nashville Family of Brothers at familyofbrothers.org. If you're a single Christian, you've probably found yourself in some derpy situations. You know, like when someone you barely know starts talking about your biological clock. It's hard to know how to respond and can seem like nobody's talking about how weird these situations really are. That's why I created the Single Christian Derptitude Test. It's like a fun aptitude test navigating the derpy things that happen to singles at church. What if I told you that you have a social superpower that can keep you from losing your ever-living mind in these situations? Find out yours at marybesafred.com backslash quiz. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Rise of the Gingers for partnering on today's episode. Just as a heads up, I am an affiliate of Rise of the Gingers, which means I get a wee percentage of each sale at no cost to you. This season of Unsuitable with Mary B. Saferit is produced by me, Mary B. Saferit. Sound engineering is by Bijoy Ahmed, and the theme music is by Chad Rollinson. That's all for now. Catch y'all on the flippy flop. <laughs>